On this episode of Counter Stories, we talk with our past co-host and seasoned reporter Marianne Combs about race in public media. Welcome to Counter Stories, a favorite time of the day, a podcast by people of color for people of color and everybody else. My name is Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General for the state of Minnesota. Any comments and remarks that I make are solely my own and not to be attributed to my office or the state of Minnesota. I'm Don Eubanks, Associate Professor and Field Director for the School of Social Work at Metropolitan State University and Cultural Consultant. And I'm Holly Lee, owner of The Other Media Group. We would typically have Anthony Galloway as part of our conversation, but Anthony was unable to join us today. And in his stead, we have a fabulous guest, Marianne Combs. Hey, it's so good to be back with you all. We so missed you. So we're so happy to have you and have you a part of this conversation. Conversation for today really is going to be deep. And who else to have on this conversation but you with all of your incredible background and experience and insights. So let's get going on this. All right. Today's conversation is we're going to really go into really how public radio shows up. And quite honestly, not just public radio, but just media, public media and as a whole with respect to anti-racism and with respect to having a BIPOC lens, so Black, Indigenous, people of color lens, when we are not only listening to the reports, but actually designing the stories, right? And and seeking out what is newsworthy and what isn't. And we spent time as a group here reading a piece by Celeste Headley uh, that she wrote just uh, about a month ago, mid-January of 2021, And it was entitled, An Anti-Racist Future, A Vision and Plan for the Transformation of Public Media. I want to just open it up right now to to discussion here and and just high level. How did this piece hit you? I know it hit me in so many different ways here. uh, And there's so many things to just dissect and pull apart here. But before we go into the weeds, what did you feel when you when you read this? The gist of that report, if I was to kind of give a synopsis of that report, she put together in this report, and she's talking about the historical basis of public media or public radio, but public media in and of itself being created and sustaining and operating in a system in the dominant culture that was created and supported by racism and sexism. Uh, Because, you know, much like the the class I teach at Metro State called Comparative Racial and Ethnic Analysis, we talk about how white supremacy is the basis of this country and permeates everything that was established. And if we look at the history of this country, it was established for white men. Women weren't allowed to vote until the 1920s or 30s, same time they allowed American Indians to vote. Many of us were second thoughts according to how this whole structure was put in place. So the, the, the article and her argument is that public media being a part of that system and that structure cannot and has not 
separated itself from its racist background and sexist background. Because if you look, it was uh, public media tends to be dominated by white males. And, and in that, even though they have often through the years tried to introspectively look at themselves around those issues, nothing has changed. So what this article essentially was stating was putting out a game plan on how public media could correct itself through its history of racist and sexist dealings with its employees and in a manner that would that would repair the damage that was done to those individuals and the communities because it 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 capitalized how when they do when they cover stories and this is you know this is the argument that we always would say and on a counter stories when we were used to be uh, associated with NPR that we felt our podcast was so important because we were providing a perspective very seldom heard on public radio a perspective that came from the various communities of color in the American Indian community it was so it was very in depth you know, and outlined and laid out and it had steps, um, amends, hiring, promotions and pay structures, training, transforming coverage and accountability. Um, so it's broken out into all these sections. And it's just it just seemed a lot of the things that they're just saying just seemed so. Yeah, duh. <laughs> <laughs> so before we go into the details, we are good. We want our audience to know our listeners to know that we will post this piece on our Facebook channel, as well as our, our upcoming website. So more to come on this. You've been listening to Counter Stories. I'm Luz Maria Frias with crew members Don Eubanks and Hilly Lee, and our special guest, Marianne Combs. Support for this show is provided by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Uh, but Marianne, help us understand how you receive this, and, and I'll chime in afterwards. Let let our listeners know how you identify and, you know, what your media background and experience has been and how you view this to be um, impactful, uh, hopefully, in, 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 in the community. Sure. And just, you know, for longtime listeners of Counter Stories will recognize my voice, voice as a former co-host of the show when it was on Minnesota Public Radio. Um and I am, up until recently, I worked for Minnesota Public Radio as a host, a reporter, a producer, and um, for, you know, more than 23 years. And I'm white. I'm not, I do not identify as a person of color, but I, I did, I was one of the 200 or so people who signed off on Celeste Headley's document in support of it. And I'm, my understanding is that this was a group effort that put together this document that she led. And, but it's really... What I love is that it's a blueprint. It's a roadmap. It is something that any radio institution or public media institution can pick up and use. And frankly, not just public media. This is a really excellent uh, roadmap for uh, reparations, amends, and building uh, trust and equity moving forward for any institution. This this is really um, it's a fabulous think piece and and 
really, I think anybody can dive into it and be like, oh, oh, okay. So this gives me a place to start and it gives me action steps. Really useful. Um, so what I can share is not as somebody who's white and who has worked within public media for over two decades. Uh, what I can share is that I have been in a system where many of us are well-meaning and want to change the system and are working to change the system, but seem to keep falling back and being like, why haven't we made any progress? Uh, and I think that there are some really uh, complex reasons around that, but one is the nature of media and how it works. I think it is particularly hard to interrupt and disrupt the way media works because it is, is it is so focused on the next thing that needs to be done. Uh, as somebody who has worked in a newsroom for 20 years, we didn't often take a moment to sit back and say, so how are we doing? What should we change? What about that project worked or didn't work? That was really just sort of an afterthought. It was always about, okay, we, we've got another deadline to meet. We've got another project to do. And so the sort of the cruel master of time really um, killed any notion of creativity or experimentation or play and would always mean that the people who'd been there the longest were like, come on, we just need to do it this way because we need to get it done. Uh, and I think that, and it's, I think in some ways that's almost like a white supremacy structure to my mind, this sort of the, the, the master of time and, you know, dictating what gets done and what gets tried or not tried. So uh, what I saw as a result was, you know, amazing, talented, creative journalists of color would come into the newsroom and they would last maybe 18 months two years, and they would be like, this place is killing me. I can't work here uh, because I'm not being given, well, I'm not being given the respect. I'm not being given the time to do the work I want to do to build relationships and communities where this place has no relationship. It has no, you know, pre-existing relationship. So it just became this really, um, and we'd see it come and go in waves. And in, in fact, I think in Minnesota Public Radio right now, they're seeing another wave of women of color in the newsroom exiting. Uh, and I think that until there is some massive shift in the way things are done and, um, you know, the sort of making amends and observing their uh, our own complicit nature in, in this, in white supremacy, that there won't be a real home made for people of color in a mainstream white public media institution. You know, that's something that I've mentioned on this show several times. It's just the checking of the box, right? And so, oh, we've hired a, a person of color for a reporter role. There she goes. And then there's no support. There's no helping them to grow in that position. They're set, they're set up for failure. Um, I think one of the things that was mentioned in this article was just how um, public stations have become these lily pads where um, folks jump around, they go from one to the other, they never stay for very long, two or three years. And I think those of us who have worked with public media in the Twin Cities have, have seen that. Um, and I think that, you know, even though we're a very big metropolitan area, we don't have that many options as far as 
um, public media go. So once you're kind of out of one institution, you're out, right? There's not really anywhere else to go if you're a radio personality. Um, there's not really anywhere else to go here in the Twin Cities. I think we see at, uh, in, you know, I'm sure you've seen this, Marianne, in public media, people come and go within the, that organization a lot because there is in this market nowhere, really nowhere else to go. Yeah. And I think also um, there is this, uh, what I have witnessed and which I find the most tragic is this attitude of, well, we're the big guys, so we don't need to train the young talent. We're going to pick off the new talent from elsewhere to come and work with us. We can take the creme de la creme because we're the big guys. And not a sense of what what I feel like is like, because you're the big guys, shouldn't you be bringing in young talent, training it, nurturing it, growing it, bringing it up to the standards of this institution, and then sending them out and to represent this institution and say, you know, the best reporters are coming from NPR or some other large white mainstream public media station, and they are the standard that everybody aspires to. I agree with with your statement, Marianne and Halee, that this blueprint really is a blueprint that can be used against and across any organization, not limited to media. And, And it really does provide a simple yet complex way. And it's complex because anytime we talk about race, and changing people's minds and, and attitudes and dispositions, there's so much complexity there, you know, to be had. Uh, but then we also need to think about how we go about this. And, and, and this group here with, with Celeste being the, the lead author, but the 200 plus people, including yourself, Marianne, have given us, I think, a really clear roadmap that just illustrates it's really not that difficult. It's not that difficult to do this, right? Uh, there's a quote that I want to share with, with our listeners that I think really will help us understand how we can go forward. Uh, and then we're going to dive into the first section, which is amends. The quote that, that really resonated with me, and Don, you were right when, in setting this up with the anti-racism and, and the need for that. This is a quote. Racism is not a knowledge problem. We know it's wrong. We know racism is wrong. We've known that it's wrong for hundreds of years, but we're making racist decisions anyway. Racism is a behavior problem. And that's the part I think that people really need to start wrapping their minds around. It's the behavior, right? We we have this I think someone can call it this enlightenment now with the fact that George Floyd was murdered uh, in May of 2020 during a pandemic. It's a captive moment for our our country and around the world. And, and that forced people across the country and across the world to think about systemic racism in a way that they hadn't been forced to do previously. So there's there's just this culmination of situations that really press the issue. And from there, there was a resurgence and an impetus across the private sector and government sector trying to rectify the issue of systemic racism. But 
too often it ends up being just lip service, right? Uh, because people start having these hashtags, they start having these statements. But what really is important is a blueprint and a framework that can get us there. So let's let's dive into that. Uh, you had Haley, you mentioned amends, Don and, and and Marianne as well on amends. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about how important it is to have a reckoning of what's been going on, have uh, the power of the apology and how significant that is, and also offering reparations. You've been listening to Counter Stories. I'm Luz Maria Frias with crew members Don Eubanks and Hilly Lee, and our special guest, Marianne Combs. Support for this show is provided by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. My overall reaction and I, I want to, I kind of look at the, you know, I always look at the larger picture, but I agree with Marianne, you know, while this was written in the uh, public media, public radio, public media um, culture, uh, when you read that article and you look at what it says, because it, you know, Marianne talked about how the environment in public radio um she referred to it, you know, works in this in a white supremacy environment. But you know, I would tend to describe that as you know the dominant culture, right? And so it operates in the dominant culture. I think people can understand that. And you know, and and as people of color, you know, I, my whenever I encountered that, I would always point out that that everything was being covered by uh, kind of this white middle class liberal perspective, and not that there's not that there's anything wrong with that is just that it doesn't include and or really get at the perspectives of anything else and so what this article i thought did a very good job was was um showing how racism and sexism which is integral to the creation of this country acts as the you know the the, the pillars that support this and what that article does then is begin to dismantle a roadmap on how to dismantle that by making reparations to past employees and to communities that that this type of reporting and other types of shows, whatever, have harmed. I mean, because it goes beyond just, you know, uh, the spoken word. I mean, I can remember looking into magazines like... Uh, you know, uh, come on, so I'm drawing a blank, you know, National Geographic, for instance, and how often indigenous populations were portrayed in their pictorials and in their articles or, you know, I mean, it goes on and on and on. What really struck me was that you could take this blueprint and apply it to any mainstream organization that has operated the same way, and you have a blueprint that would that would allow them to self-examine themselves and look at what they would need to do to make changes. That's what I thought for me, that's what I thought this article was doing. And and um so besides pointing out that what what public media and public radio can do you know um um 
it I just thought I, after reading that article, I went, wow, this is what many of us have struggled with was putting together something that helped folks understand and step them through a process because people are always asking, well, what do we do? Right. What do we do to overcome it? Well, here you go. Here's a plan. So I also think um, one of the things at this point, this document touches on and that I think public media institutions need to keep on referring back to is that there were and, and news organizations need to reflect on is that there were reports done in the 1960s about how journalism provoked and led to race riots in the late 1960s, that it was a factor in terms of how it failed to serve communities of color. Um, and that, he, you know, 50 years later, this is found to still be true, that there has not been that much progress made over the course of 50 years in terms of journalism representing a multitude of voices and bringing people to a better understanding of people who are different from them. Uh, and you don't even have to, it doesn't have to even be about race when you talk about that. You could be talking about political spectrum too, that journalism, and many people will say that over the past eight years, 12 years, that journalism has done in many ways more to divide us than to bring us together in terms of its reporting around politics. But I think, you know, and this is but also true with race. So this notion of, you know, for instance, take the hierarchy of time. You have to be first. If you want to be a great journalist, you have to get the story first. And why, why is it important for us to get first, to be first with the story? Well, that has to do with economics. That doesn't mean it's going to be a better story. It just means you're more likely to get more views and more clicks. And therefore, more people are going to go to you and be talking about your version of the story than somebody else's version. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's the better story. So there are all these ways in which we can look at, like, if we take out the hierarchy of time, what kind of reporting are we then freed up to do? And how does that contribute to a better and broader understanding of our culture? And what does that allow us to do in our communities in terms of building long-term relationships and having longer conversations, et cetera? You know, an example of that, I was listening this morning to the radio station that we're kind of referencing, and they were covering, you know, the events that are happening in uh, uh, Miramar, right? Um, but it wasn't local. It was the island across the ocean in their radio station, right? there, the the one with the three initials. And um, so they did this, you know, piece on how the military coup is happening and there's protests and they were talking about the the reluctance or the fact that the uh the military uh will not back down but as i was listening to the report every expert they had on this report was not a resident of miramar they had no one from the actual country that they interviewed. Everybody was white and an expert who worked with the country. And I couldn't help but sit there and think how odd that they're giving us this whole line 
and how the military is doing this, this, and this, and this, and this, uh, but not one person in that report was from the actual country. So I have no idea what's really happening over there because we don't hear from them. And, um, but that's just an example of what you're talking about. And, um, and it happens in our communities all the time. I mean, you know, there was, there, uh, I think we talked about in Counter Stories, we talked about after, um, um, after George Floyd, and then after the uh, protests happened worldwide, um, and Black Lives Matter, I mean, and I mean, it was this whole tremendous response. But I remember in a couple of our podcasts, we began to talk about, well, how long is this going to last before the news stories start changing their tone and their direction? And it didn't take very long. <laughs> And then the reporting began to change, and we're still seeing that now because now what the story is is what the is the political fight to provide protection for that for uh, for the court case, right? I haven't seen anything on my news feed about people showing up to you know they they're treating this like uh, like Trump's troops are going to show up, right? I mean, so they shifted. The, the the entire story has shifted away from justice and Black Lives Matter to protecting Chauvin in this case. Hmm. When, we, when we think about examples, the other example that comes to mind for me is the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol in D.C. And for, for a while, you know, weeks thereafter, we just, we kept seeing... Um, the language that public radio kept using and, and commercial radio as protesters. They were not protesters. They were insurrectionists. They were violating the law. They were breaking and entering into a federal building. But yet there was this, this uh, protectionism of, of, of who they are. And you just have to question whether that would still be the, the case if those on the Capitol steps, engage in that behavior would have been BIPOC, would have been Black, Indigenous, or people of color. And I would argue, no, it wouldn't, you know, because we have enough evidence that tells us that, that, that the language is so coded. And the media is responsible for that, as you said earlier, Marianne, and they continue to perpetuate that. And until we can have them understand that they need to scrub down their language and be real with it and have an anti-racism approach to it, we find ourselves in this loop. So, yeah, I mean, in continuing our conversation, I think one of the things I want to be just really clear on is that um, I have a lot of love for public radio. It's been my home, um, my career home for over 20 years, close to 25 years now. And, and I have witnessed firsthand the the struggle and the care with which many, so many people are working and trying so hard to do right by race. And I think the frustration, I just, I, I feel the need to reiterate it, is that the, fr the, the problems are greater than any one individual. The problems are systemic. And so when you have a system that works day in, day out, and is constantly churning out the latest news, 
it's very hard to stop and rebuild the system and say, okay, we're going to recreate it and fix it. So it's like trying to fix your car while you're driving. Uh, and so I think that is one of the real challenges for public media is how does it do the internal work, the introspection of looking back at how it's participated in perpetuating uh, the dominant culture's, you know, power, and then make amends for that, and then change the way it works while continuing to, you know, constantly be this day in, day out news media institution. Marianne, so, you know, unfortunately, that same that same issue exists across the board, right? I mean, no matter which institutions, no matter what system we go to, you, you've you kind of hit the nail on the head. How do you change, you know, it, 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 how do you change this move, this system um, while it continue, while it rightfully continually needs to, to, to continue to do what it's doing, but how, you know, and it's based on the system. And I think that, you know, that indeed is real work. Cause you know, I've all, you know, even though on counter stories, we've often have been critical of NPR. NPR still is a, the radio station I prefer to listen to to get my news because I still am going to get that perspective, right? I mean, I I still respect what they're attempting to try to do, but I also understand the cultural nuances and where it operates. So I know I'm not getting the full in-depth or our communities are actually being covered the way we want. But, and so... And I think you've hit the nail right on the head is how do you change that while it's happening? Because I, I think one thing that one thing the article mentions a lot is um, culture change or shifting culture, changing the culture within public media. And I think that fits into what we're talking about right now, too, is how do we do that? I mean, you know, there was a reason why why you left Marianne. And, and it's because the culture just it wasn't great. Yeah, well, and I think um I think also it's really interesting to point to how COVID has played a role in some of these moments for these institutions. Um, oh, talk about that. What yeah, well, so it, it, it's interesting when you talk about like we are – take, for instance, the theater in, uh, industry. The theater industry had to go dark because of COVID. And then we had George Floyd killed – in Minneapolis, after, you know, people were already uh, in lockdown. And then so suddenly there's this huge racial conversation and racial tensions. And that filtered into the theater community. And so people use that moment to speak up in a way that they wouldn't have been willing to speak up if they had regular gigs and like they were about to go and perform in this one theater. So they're not going to call that theater out right now because they got a job they got to do. But here they are. They don't know when their next gig is. So the conversation started to happen. And now things have actually been happening in terms of institutional change because theater was sort of taken off the boards uh, during this time. We'll see how well it plays out in the long term. But at least there was that moment to be like, hey, we've got time to talk about this. We should be talking about this. When um, we 
Yeah. When we talk about culture change, it really isn't that hard. I mean, there are what we're talking about is organizational change. So that means change management. And there are at least eight change management models that are widely known across our our country and world, quite honestly. Uh, and the most the most popular ones would be the McKinsey model or uh, the uh, the Cotter model. Right. And when we think about that, it's it's change management. There in the Cotter model, there are eight steps from step one to step eight that'll get you to that. It's really not that hard. What it is, though, uh, it has to be intentional because we mm-hmm. know that what gets measured gets done, and we also know that every system is intrinsically designed to render the results it's intended to get, which is what you started off with uh, earlier on, Marianne, is that if the system is designed to be the first one to break a news, a story, whatever, that master of time that you said earlier in, in our previous segment, that's the design of the system. It's intended to to render the result of being first, right? So if we think about, if we step back and you think of it from an organizational development and change management approach, it's not a mystery. We know as a society how to do it. It's it's the commitment and intentionality and the resources that are lacking. Let's talk mm-hmm. about resources. Let's talk about yeah, and actually that you play right into lose. That plays right into the point I was about to make to Don is that in terms of media public media especially, public media lost a ton of funding because of COVID, because all those theaters and you know other organizations were, didn't have any shows to sell. So all that underwriting went away. Lots of people lost their jobs. So that membership money went away. Uh, so there was all this stuff that was happening so that suddenly, you know, the NPR newsroom lost a ton of people in a short amount of order because they took buyouts and then they had layoffs. Uh, and in that company, it was suddenly your resources are the less are less than you've had in a long time and the demands on what you do are greater than they've ever been so it's that sense of like how are we supposed to suddenly change our culture in the midst of this you know absolute emergency amidst of a pandemic and racial upheaval and so the thing is that it can't be my my feeling is that public media or any organization is always going to say, well, we're, but we're in a crisis right now. Let's wait till things calm down. <laughs> so they can't, they can't do like Nate, uh, late night TV and just run a rerun <laughs> while they regroup. Right. If only, I mean, if only, <laughs> I mean, I understand that, but see, but you know, from our perspective, you know, as members of communities of color, we're always gaslighted with that same excuse. Right. And 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 so, you know, after a while, it's like, you know, it, it it it's the same old thing. I mean, this article, I think, did such a great job of in of, of doing it. And I and I'm you know, I fall on the side with lose here. Not we're not disagreeing. We're all just pointing out all the variables and all the different aspects that make this so hard and so complicated. Um but I think that it 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 does take intentionality, 
The problem is, is how does an organization usually go about doing that? They bring in one goddamn, per, excuse me, one one person of color. They put them in a leadership role, and they expect the entire culture to change when everyone, every other person below below that individual is undermining everything they do. And that's usually what happens in these systems. And so, you know, and 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 um and we see this play in or play in day in and day out with every place that attempts to um increase their equity and inclusion through their diversity and inclusion committees and yeah. Oh, and they need to get a grant to do it. That's the other thing that gets me is like, oh, well, we have to get a grant to do this work on around racial equity. It's like, no, this is core work. And that office is and that office is down the hall, right? But but that that's the first thing to get cut when they when they need money. Exactly. And it sits alone by itself down the hall. It's not integrated into the entire culture of the workplace. So while that work goes on, that office sits down there and is responsible for this whole thing. And so we've seen that model doesn't work. Um, so I think that, you know, the blueprint in this report um, does give a, a step-by-step process on how to make bring that about. I, I, I'm going to be a little... A little provocative here. Which <laughs> oh, go for it. <laughs> Marianne, when you, yes, I acknowledge your statement earlier of, you know, management thinking this is, how do you change in the middle of a crisis with this pandemic, with COVID-19 and the economic downturn? My, my response to that is BIPOC communities have been in a crisis for over 400 years. That's what systemic racism is. We are in a crisis. So it's a privilege for dominantly led institutions, whether in the media or otherwise, to use that as an excuse, right? Yeah, and, and, I, and I'm not saying that a manager said to me, we're in a crisis, we can't do this right now. But I'm just like, from it being the air that I breathe and the water I swim in, it just feels like that's the, the constant thing. It's like, oh, God, we can't do that right now. We, we've got all this stuff we're trying to do because we're overworked and under-resourced. And so it's just one more thing that's being added to the pile. Uh, but I do think that like the, the, the right now in terms of the pandemic, when you talk about being in a crisis, I also think that when everything is up for grabs because things are so crazy, that's also the perfect time to rebuild things. Absolutely, it's yeah. Like, if not now, when? And, and when you think about this, you're absolutely right. That was gonna be my next point is if, if folks were intentional and authentic about wanting these changes to take place, they would leverage this and begin to apply an anti-racism lens to this. And that would be the measure by which they design their programming and they look at their frameworks internally and they start to define how they do their work, right? Mm -hmm. Rather than looking at it as a one-off, embrace it, embrace that, and use that as a change management tool to start going down the path that we know is possible. You've been listening to Counter Stories. I'm Luz Maria Frias with crew members Don Eubanks and Hilly Lee and our special guest, Marianne Combs. Support for this show is provided by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Here's the thing is I, I feel like the, what keeps coming back as like the, the block in the road is money that people are so like oh you want me to spend money on this 
I need to invest in this. I don't know. I mean, that's just, that's asking a lot. You know, that's the, oh, let's just hire one person and have it become all their job. It's this, this, oh, it looks great on paper, but when it comes down to actually paying for it, I feel like there's such resistance to actually making the investment. Are you suggesting their patrons wouldn't support that? That's a trick question, I mean, I... I had to throw it out there because where does a lot of their funding come from? It comes from our taxes and from our donations. And if they can panhandle and put, I mean, you know, they started their drive yesterday or whatever. But Don, but Don, we've seen this, right? I mean, we've seen that the audience for a lot of public media is usually older white people. And that's who they want to cater to. When I worked in public media, I invited a young organizer on a show. She was Somali. And the complaints they got about her accent. So she was never invited back because you know what? Nobody, uh, very rarely do people actually call and just say that was wonderful. When they want something, when they there's something to complain about, they're going to call you up. And so when you talk about that, I mean, we've seen that, right? When Counter Stories was canceled. We experienced we, that. Yes, exactly. We experienced that. Remember when, because when they would play our podcast on NPR, it was always at 11. But then uh, a, a two or three times they slotted us in the nine o'clock time slot, and that's which is primo. totally different uh, audience. I think the audience you were just describing, and uh, that was the most reaction our podcast ever got because they had no idea who we were, and they had no idea what we were talking about. And they and and the first time we were canceled, <laughs> they told us it's because we weren't. You know, we were on air. We were on uh, the show. We were with NPR for, what, a year? And they said, we just didn't bring enough of that new audience. And how can we do that within a year when folks from our community, you know, didn't know about NPR? I mean, And should that be your job as one show within exactly. seven days a week, 24 hours a day, and you're on like once a week or once every other week? And, it's like, and that was during the time we weren't even on air. Right. We were online. So when we, coming back to this issue of money, let's get real with this. When we look at the demographics of our country, our country for the last 20 years has seen a browning of America, right? It's no secret. If you look at the data, you look at the trends in terms of growth rate, so birth rates versus death rates. The birth rates for BIPOC communities, Black, Indigenous, people of color, is far higher than the death rates. Comparably, then, contrast that with the dominant white society, lower birth rates, higher death rates, because it is an older population. Now, if you think about public media or any business, it is a business, right? Any business in our society, wouldn't it be smarter to think about how you're going to sustain your funding by reaching out to these audiences now, building that loyalty? and having them be your supporters in the years to come. I think about this and I reflect on a conversation I had with a union leader when I was working for the mayor of St. Paul about 10 years ago. This union leader was angry because we had redesigned the bidding process so that we would have more bids going to businesses that were hiring 
BIPOC employees, but that were also uh, BIPOC owned. Under that uh, existing law we and practice, we would contract out with uh, minority-owned businesses, that was the language back then, to the tune of a million dollars a year. Once we put in play the various changes that I designed, it went to $13 million a year. Big change, right? Not rocket science, but big change from a million a year to 13 million a year. And in three years, we were at 40 million, where otherwise it would have been 3 million. I'm having this conversation with this union leader and he's squawking about why these changes are in place. And I asked him, what are the demographics of your union workforce right now, racially? And he said, you know, overwhelmingly 90% were white. I said, so here are the statistics for the demographics of our country. Look forward 20 years, look forward 30, 50 years. Who do you think is your workforce? And how do you think your union is going to be able to survive? And he looked at me and there was a long period of silence for a couple of minutes. And he looked at me, he's like, you know, I haven't been asked that question before. I, I had not thought about it. And that's a problem. The problem is people are acting as if this is the only standard. And we know what the numbers mean because we're in this field and we've seen those numbers increase exponentially and they will continue to do so. So bringing back, wouldn't, wouldn't public media be in their own self-interest to think about this or any business? I have to jump in real quick, too, because I think there's there's so many different layers to that. And we had this conversation on Connor Stories. And unfortunately, we didn't. One thing, a couple things we didn't mention. One was the backlash to the Browning of America. And we just ended up with a four-year administration. To me, it was a backlash to the Browning of America. But if we look at that, I'm not disagreeing with you at all because the the demographics in terms of communities of color are changing. The browning of America is a fact. Um, but if we look at that a little bit deeper, where does the wealth still lie? And so unless there's a, a, also a significant change in the wealth and many communities of color, African-American and Native American communities are behind the eight ball in terms of that wealth accumulation. And I think that, I think that, you know, unless there's a big shift, I mean, I'm not disagreeing with anything you're saying, but if it, if we're basing it strictly on, on, uh, I think money, it's still not going to shift because the money's still going to be with that older white population. Even though there's going to be less of them, they still control over 80 or 90% of the wealth in this country. So. So this, this, this article was signed uh, or the, a bunch of associations and a couple of public radio stations signed on to this letter saying that they were going to commit to doing this. How does that happen? I mean, they, they mm. how do we hold them accountable, right? Accountability was the last part of the article, uh, the last section. So now they're, they've signed on saying, yes, we agree. We want to do this. Now what? Yeah, I think that's absolutely the core question for, for any institution is that like, that says, oh yeah, we're going to, we want to be better. Okay. What does that look like? And by when, and what happens if you don't or if you aren't better? Um, and that's where I don't think we've, there are certainly going to be cultural consequences that you will face because you don't represent the um, ever-changing demographics. But I think 
Also, for public media especially, particularly, part of the cultural issue is that public media wants to be media for everyone. And that means conservative as well as liberal. And there is a real crisis right now around journalism's identity and who it serves. I mean, you, you've seen, you know, on the far conservative, on the sort of the more Trump conservative, thinks that journalism is evil and public media institutions are evil and not to be trusted. And then you have on the far left side, you have, you know, you, you also have organizations or people who think that, you know, the liberal media is, the, those are the good guys. And the truth is far more complex than that. Um, and I think there needs to be, a, you know, this notion of being unbiased and also claiming to be unbiased when going to funders for funding is problematic. Uh, that there needs to be some sort of broader conversation about the values that a public media institution stands for and how does that translate into its programming and are there financial consequences for that? I mean, because I think when you try and be everybody's best friend on the funding side, that has some real consequences for what you can do on the programming side and what sort of values you you um, uphold as an institution. I don't know. These are things that obviously I'm not in public media management or, <laughs> but I, I think about the consequences for this and, you know, on, on the top level. But even, even, even what you just brought up, Marianne, we could argue, or I would argue as a person of color that uh, conservative, conservative liberal perspective is still a white ideology. And it still has nothing to do with what we're talking about in terms of this article and so, because neither one of those ideologies represent me and never have, right? And so even with that, we're still caught up in, you know, the one of the other episodes where, where we talked about the spoken hub in terms of common stories. But, but, you know, so that's how deep this goes in terms of a culture change. So, yeah, public media, you know, and, and Trump and his administration brought that to the forefront. But again, that's an argument in the dominant culture that, you know, they've been having for forever and it still ignores us. And so so I think that, you know, this article was and, and I'm saying that part and parcel, that conversation needs to happen. But it needs to be happening within this larger context of race and sex, sexism, racism and sexism. And um, um, and how does that how do they change? Because there are many other internal issues with public public media that that they need to resolve also simultaneously. Right. That we don't even have time to talk about in this <laughs> in our podcast. <laughs> But, uh, and I'm not disagreeing with you. Those are all issues. But, you know, at least for myself, I see those still as white ideologies that, that, um, that again, just support the, the systems that are, that uh, have been uh, disingenuous to communities of color and American Indian community in this, in this country since it started. So this, this conversation comes at such a timely moment for me because I just got an email from a, um, 
a colleague who um, who has said, I've applied to a bunch of jobs at, at um, different public media outlets. I never hear back, um, which I've experienced, you know, back when I was uh, job hunting in my media career, applying several times to places and, and never even getting an acknowledgement. Um, and then she said, what is your opinion? Should I be going for this? Mm. You know, you know, and so I don't know what to tell her. That breaks because my on heart. The one, that I mean, on the one heart. hand, on the one hand, it's like I, we need to be there to help them, to lead them to do this and to, you know, on the other hand, why is that our job and that that's not going to be in your job description is to come in and help change the culture for, for a better, you know, uh, work environment for everybody. Yeah, I, I and and her the the position is specifically aimed towards com, uh, connecting with BIPOC communities. You know this. The I think the article did a, also a really nice job talking about Don the point that you just raised a minute ago about in and Marion as well in terms of bias and objectivity. I mean, if if you were if we were getting kind of get into the metaphysical argument of of this point, right? Is it ever really possible to be objective when reporting? Oh. Right. Let's have another call show about that. <laughs> That's a whole other yeah. I know. It'd be, another I, conversation. I, I, I'll, I'll tell you for it, the, the short version. No. No. And um, I, I totally agree with you because we all bring our own experiences and perspectives, you know, the lived experiences that we've had. But yet too often that's used as a shield, you know, for radio in terms of what they cover, what they don't cover. Um, or how and, it's covered. And how it's covered, right? The white centrality of it. The other part of this is, I think, that is troublesome. In addition to that is there's often this either or, right? That is this binary analysis. Either we do it this way or we can't do it any other way, which is false. It's a false dichotomy. And I would invite folks to think about it as a both and. Yes, we can have this approach that we've had that's fair, accurate, and representative at the same time having an anti-racist lens to it. If we were to challenge media and challenge businesses out there to have this both and approach rather than this false binary, I think we'd, we'd get a lot further. Yeah, and I think Celeste Headley talks about that in this piece with uh, her co-authors in, in terms of saying we need for for media organizations to be able to make core value statements like Black Lives Matter um, because it's one thing for a couple of white editors to be like, well, you know, that implies some real bias over, you know, our reporting that we're anti-police or the blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, the black reporter in the newsroom is like saying, wait. Is my the value of my life up for debate here? Hmm. That's not okay. Uh, so ha agreeing on some core values, I think, is so important for a newsroom in order to orient itself. And consumers of that information will orient themselves according. They'll, they'll be like, oh, you don't share my values. and eh, I'm not going to you know, consume your media, or they're going to be like, oh, this is really interesting from a different values perspective. I'm going to tune in knowing that these people are different from me. And I'm going to get a sense of like, you know, it's like when you, if uh, you tune into Fox News, not because you agree with it, but you just want to hear what they're talking about. So there's an opportunity to be a little bit more bold. Uh, and, 
That's the history of journalism in a nutshell. It's always been that you turn to one institution for the more liberal coverage and another institution for the more conservative coverage. Why not embrace it a little bit uh, and just say, yeah, this newsroom happens to believe that Black Lives Matter and that, you know, women have rights and, you know, that women are equals, uh, those sorts of things. And just say that so that informs our reporting um, and that's OK. And then also, you know, be a little bit freer to to do the real work of anti-racist activities within the structure of the newsroom. And at the same time, helping create the society that we deserve at the same time, right? By having their influence be authentic and be consistent with the values we expect of them. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation, Marianne Combs. We are always open to having you come back to us. It's been so much fun to be back. <laughs> and share we space with you. us. Um, we miss you uh, dearly. Again, this has been a conversation centered on uh, a piece written by Celeste Headley entitled An Anti-Racist Future, A Vision and Plan for the Transformation of Public Media. I'm Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General for the State of Minnesota. Any comments and remarks that I've made on this podcast and any other are attributed only to myself, my comments, my personal beliefs, and not to be attributed to my employer. I'm Don Eubanks, Associate Professor and Field Director in the Social Work Program at Metropolitan State University and Cultural Consultant. And I'm Holly Lee, owner of the Other Media Group. And I'm Marianne Combs, a veteran Twin Cities public radio reporter and producer. Yes, and a long-standing uh, friend of uh, Counter Stories and former co-host for us as well. The door is open, my dear, to come back anytime. It's an honor and a joy. Thank you. This program is a co-production of the Counter Stories crew, the other media group, and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. <laughs>